The goal of this podcast is to continue our series on key concepts of enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS. In September 2022, we discussed why we do it. And in February 2023, we talked about how we do it. Today on our SGO on the Go podcast, we will complete our trilogy and discuss implementation or looking at how well we do it. We had a chance to speak in depth with Dr. Greg Nelson from the University of Calgary about ERAS implementation, including some of the starting points and some of the sticking points. Dr. Nelson is the deputy head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Cummings School of Medicine in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and is the chief of gynecologic oncology at the Tom Baker Cancer Center. He is also on the executive committee for the International ERAS Society and a lead author for the ERAS Society Gynecologic Guidelines. In this conversation, we asked Dr. Nelson about his experience in his own institution and when he helps others with ERAS implementation. He shared some key lessons he has learned when it comes to ERAS. First, we asked Dr. Nelson about his thoughts on how to start. What happens if you are just at the beginning of putting together an ERAS program? So one of the things I would say is that people are going to be at different phases along the ERAS implementation continuum, right? And so if you're super, super early and you don't even know what's going on, obviously, you know, and and you're at a very low compliance, then at that point, it's really about picking something. And we always talk about picking sort of low-hanging fruit. You don't have to spend money, for example, to, you know, start taking catheters out earlier tomorrow, or you don't actually have to spend money to make a decision that tomorrow I'm actually going to feed my bowel resection case on, you know, post-op day one, right? So those are some things that you don't have to spend money on, whereas it might make, it might take some money to bring in a carbohydrate load or to institute warming preoperatively through the use of a bear hugger or something, right? So those are the types of things. But then once you get to a point where you're at sort of a sweet spot of 75%, then you've got this rolling average of your compliance where I think then you can start to be a little bit more strategic. What is the compliance rate? Did you say 75 to 80%? It's sort of debatable in the literature. Most people will say that you should be aiming for about 75%. Some teams have achieved higher, but the key thing to appreciate is that most teams, doesn't really matter what surgical discipline you're in all across the world, most people who think they're doing ERAS, but they're not auditing any sort of baseline, when they go to audit their baseline, most people fall into about the 40% compliance range. That's what the data shows. And, you know, some people end up, okay, I'm lower, some people are higher, but most people are in that, let's say, 30 to 50% range. And then as you start to build your team, you start to iterate towards improved compliance, you're, you really start to hit a sweet spot once you get to about 75%. This brought us to a conversation about measuring outcomes. We all know that data is so important, but not just baseline, but ongoing. We asked Dr. Nelson about the complexity and importance of data collection and monitoring. To be honest, you don't really know how well you're doing in any one particular area until you actually start to measure something or you, you know, do some sort of audit. And audit doesn't have to be some expensive database. I mean, it could be as simple as just capturing what you're doing in kind of 20 patients or 25 patients to get a sense of how are are we doing any sort of carbohydrate loading. I'm sure you guys have the same understanding around same-day discharge programs. You know, everybody in the United States and GYN oncology sort of thinks, oh, yeah, I think we're doing that. 
Uh, but, you know, basically until you start measuring it, most people are kind of in the 30% range until you actually institute a formal same-day discharge program. So the same thing applies to ERAS. Like people say, yeah, I'm pretty sure most of my patients are going home like post-op day three or four. But again, we don't really know until we, we kind of measure it. So I think that's what that would be one of the things that we might try to get across in the message is, you know, how well are we doing? I think there's some basic things that people can start to do. And I know some people get overwhelmed when they look at maybe some publications around how comprehensive certain centers may be collecting data, but it doesn't actually have to be that comprehensive. It can be just some sort of basic metrics that can start to give you a hint around how well you're doing at your institution. So I think that's from what I've seen. People just don't know where to start, right? That's, I think, the thing about implementation. Something that I think a number of institutions or teams at different hospitals find very frustrating is basically you have these million-dollar or billion-dollar systems that are currently collecting data about all different information, but it's frustrating to extract some of that data. And so then you have people like me coming to say, get a nurse or a master's student or write a grant so that you can hire someone to go around and collect data around you know, surgical quality metrics when, in fact, a lot of this data is already being collected, you know, at the bedside. So that's what people find really frustrating. And so if you were able to demonstrate how you could do that, for example, through the UC system, I'm sure there'd be a lot of people who would want to kind of learn from that because that's one of the Achilles heels of some of these ERAS programs, especially ours in our province, is we are actually spending a good million dollars a year on what we call our ERAS nurse clinicians who basically go around and collect all of our ERAS data on every single patient having surgery. And let's face it, you can't do that forever, right? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of person power to collect that kind of data, especially if we're already spending money to collect it in things like Epic. What report card do you use at your your home institution? Like, how do you do it with your partners? Is it just looking to see who's on the board or... Do you have a monthly, quarterly, some type of review process that you use? Great question. So I think there's, I mean, lots of different things that could be done. If you look at sort of the pure ERAS kind of approach, I mean, historically what happened in colorectal surgery is, was, which was sort of endorsed by the ERAS Society, it doesn't have to be this way, and also ERAS USA, is most people will start off meeting kind of every week-ish when they're just getting their program off the ground. That seems like a lot of effort, but sometimes that's good in the initial sort of rollout of the program. But we still continue to meet every two weeks at our institution or at least within our discipline. And so every two weeks, we're able to kind of look back at all the cases to say, okay, well, where are we doing well? Where are we not doing well? You know, who stuck around? Did we have complications that may have been related specifically to the ERAS program or was it more just sort of an intraoperative event? And so we have sort of a QI type of person that is just giving us a running chart all the time. And so we're constantly looking at, you know, for example, our median length of stay for open cases. We look at then our same day discharge rate. That's sort of our metric for our MIS cases. And currently where we continue to just bounce around 80 to 83% for our same-day discharge rates. Every once in a while, we kind of jump down to below 80, and then we kind of jump in to see, you know, what are we doing wrong? And then we're constantly looking at sort of average complications, and then obviously we look at 
you know, we're constantly looking at things like leaks and that type of thing. So that's how we do it locally. But I would encourage most people. Another message would be that you probably need to be meeting at least every couple of weeks to kind of look at your, you know, compliance and how you're doing in each of the different components. Are you meeting with your team, let's say anesthesia, nursing, or is it just within your department or division? So the ERS team that I'm referring to in our gynae oncology ERS team, for example, is basically every second Thursday at 7 a.m. Because that's when I know that my anesthesiologist is free. Usually our nurse manager is there. We're usually able to get our clinical pharmacist there as well. So it's basically I'm the ERS champion as the surgeon. We have the ERS anesthesia champion. We have the nurse ward manager and then essentially a pharmacist. And then depending on what what component we're working on in that particular week, like let's say we've highlighted that we're having issues we're actually seeing that our SSI rate has slightly increased. You know, what are we doing wrong? Has there been something that has changed? So then we might bring in someone from, you know, infection prevention and control to help us interpret some of that data. So it's, but every two weeks we have that core group and then we bring in people on an ad hoc basis and we find that seven o'clock works, right? Sometimes there was a period of time where we said, oh, well, let's try 4.30. Well, then, you know, people's cases were running over, anesthesiologists couldn't make it. So I don't know, in a hospital, it seems to me 7 a.m. seems to be a bit of a, a sweet spot for at least ERAS teams that I know of. I do think that it changes over time and each program needs to kind of see where they are in their maturation to be able to grow on their own at their own pace and just helping people think about if your anesthesiologists are eager, getting them engaged to work on things, but also working on the nursing side because, you know, our challenge is even though we tell people to ambulate and get their catheters out, they're still in. (laughs) And so we're trying to figure out what we can do on this side, whereas on the other side, we seem to be making more progress. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up another really great point, which is just because you have a really passionate surgeon or surgical team that has an order set and you've, you know, ticked off all these boxes, whether it's on a piece of paper or an EMR to remove fully catheter the next morning in an open case, or basically you, you go and round it between cases at noon the next day and the catheter's still in, right? And so then you kind of ask the charge nurse, it's like, sorry, we got a little busy, or the patient classically, if they had an epidural, right, they're like, maybe you are coming up against a nurse who has a lot of experience and says, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, we can't take the catheter out, right? So there's so many different barriers. And the other really great point that you brought up is every institution has its own set of unique challenges and barriers. And so that's why I think one of the other messages for this podcast could be, this is why it's really important to do your own kind of baseline audit, because you may be doing some things at your institution that come quite easily for your own culture that maybe are not that easy at another institution down the road, right? And so that's why it's important to really measure what you're doing well and what you're not doing well, right? So it's that's, I think, one of the key things. But the other thing, too, is, as you said, yeah, everybody, you guys are having great success at your institution in terms of doing some of these, you know, analgesic type of modalities that help to decrease opioid use. But like you said, maybe one of your challenges is we just can't seem to get above 60 percent catheter removals in under 24 hours. You guys are going to work on that. Right. And so then you're going to bring around all the stakeholders that are involved around that particular challenging compliance item. So 
bring in the nurses, bring in the aides, bring in whoever can impact that patient in that particular low compliance item. So I think that's one of the other key messages as well. But we were talking a little bit about pharmacy and the role of pharmacy and pathways and how mm-hmm. sometimes it's utilization of EMR, but our, our pharmacists also help keep us in check and help us with monitoring things as well. As we talk about the teams, the, the pharmacists are part of the clinical team, but I think they're a very valuable ally also in all of the concepts that we work on for our different ERAS pathways. We recently published a study where it was actually Kevin Elias from Harvard, myself, and a couple of other people. And we looked at the role of clinical pharmacy in ERAS pathways. And we were actually able to show that clinical pharmacists are actually able to help increase compliance to different components within the ERAS pathway, especially as it relates to you know, antibiotic prophylaxis, steering people correctly to the right, VTE prophylaxis, nausea and vomiting prophylaxis. So I 100% agree with you. That would be another good point to bring up as well. We always talk about the ERAS team being at minimum the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the nurse. But I think a lot of mature ERAS programs have recognized that the more you expand your stakeholder group to a certain point. Obviously, you don't want to have so many people in the room that it's overwhelming, but you want to include enough people that have specific role in rolling out the ERAS program at at your institution, right? So again, imagine trying to make some, you know, for example, mobilization, right? So everybody has a challenge with mobilizing people on the floor or at least capturing uh, data regarding mobilization. And so that's something that's so key for the nurses, for the aides to help with that. So the same thing applies to pharmacy, right? So for a little while, we didn't have clinical pharmacists on our ERS team. But now, of course, as you pointed out, that's a really key component. We now are actually inviting our surgical exec or surgical managers to our teams as well, because they can help us with certain low compliance items too. When it comes to dealing with skeptics, Dr. Nelson had this to say. I still have some people from time to time saying to me, gosh, what's the evidence? Do we really have the evidence? We have level one evidence now establishing improved length of stay, complications, readmissions, you know, no increase in mortality. Like it's everything, increased cost. You know, now we have a couple of RCTs. We have a, you know, fairly high level meta-analysis. So, you know, people used to think that ERAS outcomes were primarily because of the Hawthorne effect, right? Just with people watching a team and therefore they're going to do better. But we now have good randomized controlled trial evidence to say that that's not the case. The other thing, which I think for this group is sometimes all the clinicians are on board. You've got this amazing team and you're ready to implement, but your healthcare administrator may not actually be fully engaged. And so What we found also is it's really important to speak the language of healthcare administrators to help with ERAS implementation at your institution. And so many healthcare administrators speak the language of cost savings or ROI, our return on investment. And so we now have good evidence to show that ROI for ERAS programs can actually be as high as 7.3. So for every dollar invested in your ERAS program, you can get $7.3 back. So Again, that's one of the key things because that's how you suck your healthcare administrators in to say, yeah, I'm starting to hear about ERAS, but why should we do this at our institution? Thank you for your thoughts and comments, Dr. Nelson. Both the economic benefits of ERAS as well as improved patient outcomes are both goals to aspire to. We hope that this discussion is informative and helps establish the practice of change management and education at multiple levels. 
Our committee members include Drs. Jingyi Chern, Dr. Millie Karitz, Dr. Amanika Kumar, Dr. Andres Ladanyi, Dr. Matt Wager, and Dr. Aaron Zacholsky. I'm Dr. Lee Mei Chen, Chair of the Working Group. We thank our SGO education staff for their continued support, especially Beth White. We recognize that there are continuous changes in guidelines and management strategies. For more dialogue, please join ongoing discussion groups at the SGO Connect Ed website. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.